Duck Creek Technologies, it's Conversations on the Creek, the podcast series where we interview thought leaders about how the latest InsureTech is transforming the PNC insurance industry. I'm Rob Savitsky from the product marketing team. And I'm Matthew Storty from the Duck Creek Solution Consulting team. In today's episode, we're so pumped to be joined by Brian Felchuk. We share his perspective on the future of insurance personalization. If you don't know Brian, Brian is an insurance and insurtech advisor and thought leader at Insurance Evolution Partners. He's a best-selling author and speaker. He's an awesome podcaster. I'm a huge fan of his show. And he is now in his new day job, the president and the CEO of the Property and Liability Resource Bureau. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So glad we're able to connect today. Uh, You know, as I was saying before, been a big fan of your show. Uh, I've got a copy of your book here. I think Matthew's reading volume one. I'm reading volume two. And uh, you guys come together like Captain Planet, let our powers combine and you'll have all the stories. That's perfect. (laughs) Exactly. And Matthew, awesome to have you on co-hosting with me for the first time on Conversation. I'm excited to be here. Let's do it. Let's do it. So um, yeah, I guess, you know, Brian, now that you're in this new role, could you maybe, um, you know, tell everyone what you're up to these days, but also I think it's interesting if you tell folks your background, you know, yeah. you're someone who you've worked in several carriers throughout your career. You've worked at a vendor, you've been a consultant advisor. Now you're in the nonprofit space. Could you maybe, you know, sum it all up, tell them where, where you're coming from and, and what, uh, what you're doing these days. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I am really lucky that, you know, um, through my, my insurance career, I've gotten to do a bunch of different things, so different functions, different companies, different contexts and market segments. And it's really interesting. And there's a ton going on in our industry and you get into all these different pockets and you get to see all that. And that's what I've gotten to do over the past roughly 25 years. Um, you know, I've worked at, at big carriers, uh, specialist carriers. I spent 10 years in the specialty line space working for a couple of, of uh, British carriers where I was COO of the U.S. for one and chief claims officer of the U.S. for another, um, which was amazing, like just incredible work. And uh, I spent some time at McKinsey, so I got to see a lot of other carriers doing work for their PNC practice. Um, but then I I got hooked by InsurTech. I was an early customer of a company called High Marley. They raised their Series A and asked me if I would join, and it sounded amazing. And spent a year uh, as their like head of growth, which is a nice way of saying sales. But what I got to do is like travel around and talk to people who had been my peers when I was running claims, you know, other chief claims officers, VPs of claims, et cetera, about the issues that they were facing. And I was there for a specific purpose with a specific solution, but I was hearing about so much more. And so I was actually the CEO, the founder of High Marley's idea, but I left to start kind of advising. He's like, you've got all these ideas, all these, you're talking to people about all these things. You should be helping with more than just you know, what we're doing. And uh, so I, I still did some work with them, but I started to work with lots of other solution providers and carriers on just all the change going on in the industry, what customers expect from us. And this is like just as lockdowns were hitting. So suddenly, like, we don't even know how to keep the lights on. You know, how do you adjust the claim if you can't go out and see the thing that was destroyed um, or you can't get the parts or get the repairs done? I mean, it was just a really difficult time for so many in the industry, obviously for people across the world. Um, and that's the context I started putting out my book series with these stories of insurance companies, startup and legacy, kind of making change in the industry despite all of the constraints we face. And I, I think of my work as sort of like self-help for the industry. Like how do we you know, get past the greatest challenges that we face to achieve the things we wish to achieve? Um, and and now in my, my new day job at PLRB, um, we're an organization that supports 
most of the PNC industry, uh, the PNC carriers on their quest to provide coverage. Um, and so, you know, if you think about the mission of insurance, that's really what we're here to support. So it's a really beautiful kind of arc to my story after seeing so many different parts of the insurance puzzle to now focus in on really holding up like, well, why do we exist in the first place as an industry? And that that purpose is a really nice thing to reconnect with. So um, I've been lucky, like just very cool things I've gotten to do and people that I've gotten to work with and support throughout my career. And I get to keep doing that. So I'm, I'm in a good place. That's awesome. Love that. Well, yeah, congrats on your new role. And Thank yeah, you. it's great to hear about it. Hi, Marley. Uh, you know, obviously they've been a great partner to us at Duck Creek and part of our ecosystem. And uh, yeah, well, definitely we'll, we'll have a question about your book. I think Matthew has one saved up for later, which we'll, we'll get to in just a bit. Um, but yeah, as we, you know, diving into the content for today, um, you know, obviously you wrote the future of insurance, a little play on that today in the future of insurance personalization. Um, you know, here at Dup Creek, we, when we talk about personalization, we're talking about carriers tailoring the experience, um, you know, creating more tailored experiences for customers, for agents and brokers, uh, and for their own internal employees, whether it be the yeah. claim adjuster or the underwriter. Today, though, uh, would really love to focus in on, on customer experience personalization. So, um, yeah, just right off the bat, open-ended question. When you hear the words personalized customer experiences, what comes to mind for you? Um, I think that's a really good question, especially right now, not just because of all that we can do, but from a marketing standpoint, a lot, I, I just saw another carrier jumping on the whole, um, like customize your coverage to your needs as if it's a new thing. And, um, you know, I, I love the carriers that are doing that. They're great people, great companies. I'm not knocking them, but, um, deduct deductibles and limits have been around for a very long time. The notion that you can tailor your coverage to what you need is not new. And we see this in the industry where everyone sort of gets on the same marketing bandwagon. Um, to me, that's not personalization. That's just like having the right level of coverage for your needs. And that's nothing new and it's a good thing, but like that's not really what we're talking about. When I hear personalization, what I think about is the customer experience. So what are the mechanisms I can use to interact with you, whether that's purchase, renewal, billing, service, claims, what have you. And those mechanisms are really dynamic and fluid, specific to the situation. And I don't just mean like, this is a claim, so here are the tools. But in this very moment, this is the thing I want to do within my claim. And this is how I'm feeling. You know, the car just hit us. So my needs might be a little bit different than three days later when it's about some procedural thing or a status update. So what is the like the arsenal of tools at my fingertips as a customer that I can tap into as and when I want to tap into them and to not have to start the process over because I'm, you know, I was chatting with someone on a chat tool and now I'm talking on the phone like, oh, I got to start the whole thing over again. Um, I want my experience to be portable and dynamic and fluid. And that to me is personalization. Uh, letting people interact the way they want to interact, self-served, be served, doesn't matter. And that includes whether you've got an agent in the mix or not. Um, all of that needs to be seamless. And the cool thing is, actually, we have everything to deliver that right now. So it's just about the will. We need to be able to deliver that. But the tools are there. Um, so that's one side of it. The other is true product personalization. And that's getting to um, a place I don't think we're really at yet. But I think a lot of the building blocks are there and people are certainly talking about it, but it's 
it's thinking about well, what's my actual life situation? What are my assets and my experiences and other things that I need to protect? What is the mix of various insurance solutions that speak to that? So if I'm a traditional looking customer that has, you know, a kid and or 2.3 or whatever the average number of children is and like this size house of this average value and this many cars and whatever those standards are, that's what this industry was built for. But what if I don't own a home or I don't own a car because that's less common today than it was before and it will continue to be less common and I may not be subscribing to a car yet, but at some point I might. Um, what's my mobility picture? It's not a personal auto insurance question anymore. It's a much broader question and it may have some product liability coverage in there because I'm subscribed to some autonomous like car. I mean, this like 50 years down the road, maybe, but all of this is very personalized. Um, it, it ultimately is just in the way I wanted to figure out my service solution by piecing together all these different things. I may need to have a responsive view of myself as a, as a set of experiences rather than these sort of fixed asset insurable moments that the industry was built on. You know, there's like a big expensive thing that we tie coverage to. I think that will break down over time into what will feel like a lot of smaller, less valuable policies, but in aggregate may actually be worth significantly more because we're now, um, we're creating more continuous coverage for people's life experiences. And it, I think there will be a point where it will be a lot more seamless to, you won't even consider buying insurance. It just will happen through all of these different experiential moments. And the question is, how do we knit that together into a, into a business that's viable? Sure. Yeah, no, there's some great points. I heard, I heard a, a bunch of things in there. I think, you know, what you were saying on the, the coverage personalization side, uh, building that profile of the customer, I think we have to realize and reflect like the customer may not necessarily know what they want or need or what coverages are, are uh, available, especially right. when we're talking personalized. So that's that's a huge opportunity, I think, for insurers to understand. Yeah, like you were saying, what what kind of house do they have? What What are the different assets that they they're thinking about where where they might not traditionally pursue protection. And then it sounded like on the claim side, you know, you made some points around uh, tying those channels together, something that has definitely been brought up on the show before, um, you know, thinking back to our episode with Glia on digital customer service, you know, people, uh, maybe your conversation starts off, you're you're having a conversation, uh, just chatting on online in, in a portal, and then you want to move it to, to screen sharing, or yeah. you want to you want to pick up the phone and, and call them. You don't want to leave that experience. You want to be able to talk to that same person. They know exactly what happened to you and they can give you that, you know, that next step and escalate if, if needed. So, um, yeah, I definitely feel you on those, those, uh, examples. Yeah. Cool. Hey, so Brian, I've got a question for you. Um, okay. in your book, the future of insurance, you devote a really nice chapter on a carrier's adoption of the use of text within the claims process. And I was curious about your perspective on where the industry is in adopting text overall across, you know, all the carriers that support our market. Yeah. And do you see different levels of sophistication where some carriers really use text effectively? They're, they're really optimizing that, that customer experience, but others, you know, they may have adopted the tool, they're checking the box, but it's not really making an impact on their customer experience. Yeah. I, um, it sounds to like lay people, like this shouldn't be a conversation. Um, like, it seems like, Hey, yeah, you text, like, that's fine. That's just normal. But there's a lot of nuance to how we do that and what we use to do that. And that's where I see the difference. I, I do think the industry has sort of gotten religion on texting. And it was interesting for me 
when I was at High Marley, it was literally between two conferences, the one conference in like May of 2019, every conversation started with like, let me tell you about texting and why it's a thing and why it matters and why you need it in your business. Literally two and a half weeks later, we're at another conference and every conversation started with, okay, we need to text. Can you talk to us about the solution? And I was like, was I that effective two and a half weeks ago that the whole industry? Probably not. But we, we stopped having to like explain the basic idea of like, this is text and this is why it's helpful. Yeah. Something, something started to move. And since then, like the industry is a very momentum and sort of following um, kind of industry. So I do think on the whole, we understand like, no, this is a thing we need to take it seriously. We should be doing it. A ton of carriers have gotten on board, but the devil's in the detail. So you'll hear two carriers say like, and you can text with us and you look into how, and some of them are texting just through your native texting app. And that's what we did at High Marley, which is what a customer thinks of when they think of texting is like, you're like everybody else I talk to. You're just another text stream and lots of other businesses do that. But then you have carriers who have an app and they have a chat feature in the app and that's how they're texting. And so if I'm the customer and I'm going through something terrible in my life that you're supposed to be helping me with, I have to go into the app and hopefully the notifications are working right. So I know there's a text for me and I have to remember how to navigate it because quite often they're not that easy to get around. And then, you know, like hopefully it's not clunky and like I've seen some where the keyboard disappears or yeah. the, uh, the responses just aren't loading. There's a display issue, but then you log in through the web and they're all there. Like, that is not acceptable. And yet I see a lot of carriers or some carriers who still claim victory when they call that their texting solution. This is where the difference is. And that's before we even talk about, well, what could you enable now that you've got texting going on? Can you do sentiment analysis? Can you feed those texts into your decision engines? And can you start to inform other things that you're doing because you're seeing the real-time conversations going on? Can you raise priority levels up to an adjuster and say, hey, there's this incoming chats that like, that's very nice that you're closing out this claim right now, but someone is literally in serious trouble right now. And the language that they're using says, this is something you need to get on. Can we redirect our resources effectively because of that? That's like the Nirvana use of texting. And we can do all those things today, but not everyone's there. But when I see folks who are claiming victory, when what they've implemented is something that internally they're very happy with themselves for, but externally, they haven't really listened to their customers. Um, we still do that on a regular basis in this industry. And texting is a great example of where that comes to bear. Uh, way, way back, I was part of a, a team at McKinsey helping a carrier with some customer communications as part of a, a bigger uh, bigger initiative. And they did a survey of like, how would you like to be notified of this information? And they threw out a bunch of options, like a letter, which was still very normal then. A fax was on the list because this is like early 2000s. You know, any number of things. One was email, uh, you know, come to our website, whatever the options were. They were working on a web portal for customers to log in to, to see information. That was the third most requested way to get that information by customers. But if you looked at the survey responses, number one had something like 90, 95% of people choosing as their first choice. So basically you had one answer and everything else was irrelevant. Now you could rank order them because there were at least some numbers here and there. So yeah. like we did have a, a one through 10 listing, but it was really clear. The only thing customers wanted was number one, which at that time was they wanted an email sent proactively when, when the update happened. I watched the executives who were working on this web portal 
go to their bosses and say, we've got great news. We did a survey of customers and one of the top three things they want <laughs> is this portal. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, literally like 0.83%. Statistically would, insignificant. <laughs> I mean, like nobody wanted this thing, but it justified yeah. the work they were already doing. It justified what they could do. But it really reinforced to me is like, even when customers are shouting to us, we would love for you to do this for us. We don't listen. Um, that to me is what you see when you see a texting solution that's really this in-app experience versus like just text with them. And I love the just text with them approach because then you're like one of their friends. You know, like when we think about the adversarialness that can come up in claims because all the ads from the plaintiff's bar are telling us insurance companies are here to screw you over. If you're just one of the people they talk to, like everyone else that they talk to in their life, subconsciously, you're lowering that psychological barrier to... Uh, accepting what you're hearing. If you have to log into something painful and it's slow and it's cumbersome and it's not familiar to you, that raises that psychological barrier right back up. So even if it's a little bit more work to implement, which I promise you probably isn't because um, I've seen this stuff, there's so much more benefit and you can't say, well, it's both texting. So they're equal. They really aren't equal. You're in the wrong shoes when you're making that judgment call. And that's, that's the differentiation in terms of sophistication. I think it's about that customer mindset versus like, well, what could we do? And what do we, we want people in our app. That's great, but people don't want to be in your app. So stop forcing them to do that because it's working against you, not for you. When I have friends and relatives ask me like, which carriers do I like and who they should consider? You know, I always remind them, even if it costs more, you're really paying for the claims experience. Yeah. You know, you buy a policy, but you never you know, it's not something that you'll, if you're lucky, will ever really use. And ultimately it's that claims experience that you, where you want that, that, that dream experience, that ideal customer experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't force the customer to jump through extra hoops in order to, to complete what's, what's native to them. They've yeah. got their phones in their hands 24 seven. If that's the way they want to interact with you, give them, give them that experience. Yeah. Um, Brian, another question I have for you, uh, and I used to work for a, an insurance data analytics company for a decade. Um, it, it was one of the highlights of my career. W what use um, do you see in the use of third-party data to kind of support that, that you know, personalization, that, that customer experience? Going all the way really from, you know, inception where maybe you're, you know, you're marketing, you're trying to quote, that sort of thing, all the way through the, you know, the insurance yeah. lifecycle. Well, so I think... Um the explosion of third-party data has been really clear and it's fantastic. Not everyone's doing it as much as they can, but we, what it takes to get a quote for most lines of business is dramatically better than what it used to be. And that's a great thing. And, um, you know, I was talking to an insure tech, actually one of the stories in, in my book is uh, Neptune flood. And what they were saying is the, the flood application process is, was horrible. Um, it still is. If you go through NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program, it's yep. very painful. It's very drawn out. You have to pay for the inspection and you don't even know if you're going to get coverage, but you still have to pay for the inspection. Um, and even if you know you're getting coverage, you don't even know what they're going to charge you until they do. So it, it's it's a tough process. But what uh, Jim Alberts, uh, the founder, and he was saying, we would ask people these questions, like pages and pages of questions. They don't know what the answer is. Um, and, you know, other carriers said the same thing is like, we're asking these small business owners, the full Accord app for workers comp, and they don't understand most of what they're seeing. If they yeah. have a broker, like that's helpful. But if we're selling it direct, 
what kind of information are we possibly getting back? So terrible customer experience. And from an underwriting standpoint, I hope you're concerned with what you're getting on your books because you don't know that what you just priced and wrote is actually what you just accepted from an exposure standpoint. So what Jim was saying is we can get the square footage of the home. That's public. We can get this. We can get that. We can use satellite imagery to get you know the distances and all the other things that we want to get. Why are we asking customers for that information? Why are we taking the time to send someone out to survey and add cost and add time and add frustration when we can get that data? So why do we have to ask for it or go get it ourselves? Why can't we use services to consume that and do that instantaneously? So they have something like 300 data sources or some ridiculous number that within microseconds through APIs, it all comes in. And this is where um, I think part of it is cultural, our acceptance of that as an industry. That's probably the hardest part. The other is we've seen a lot more move to the cloud and even when people aren't on the cloud, more opening up of, of uh, ability to use APIs. And that's both your system capabilities, but also your people's capabilities. You know, how flexible and capable are you and your team of living in an API-friendly world? We, we need both of those things. We need like the will and the way. That has really opened folks up to consuming third-party data. And the extremes are, um, in my second book, I talked about branch insurance, who will quote auto, home or renters and umbrella quote and bind online with three questions. Um, and two of them are basically, three. yeah, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like name, contact, and- um, Date of birth. And they, yeah. they need, um, no, they don't need your date of birth. Yeah. They need your, it's either driver's, I think your driver's license number. Um, it's one, one other piece of information, but they'll do all three. And the, the auto, like, okay, we've been getting auto quotes online for a little while now. Three questions is really light, but you know maybe you've done 10 questions, so it doesn't seem that, that big, but it's a leap. But homeowners in those three questions, that's a big change. And umbrella, nobody was quoting and binding umbrella online ever. Um, same questions. They don't add extra questions to these other lines. That to, and, and branch, unlike a lot of insure techs, branches results are actually, um, you know, they're growing. And so there's, there's a lot of confounding issues there, but their underwriting results are good. Um, and they had even a on the home. On all three lines, and yeah. they they were able to do a, a very large raise in 2022 and reach unicorn status after the markets turned. So, you know, that says, and people say, oh, you actually need to be profitable in the underwriting. And they're founded by insurance, like true insurance, passionate geeks, not outsiders who are like, oh, insurance companies are all stupid. You can just lose tons of money and it's fine. Um, you know, they like truly underwriting focused mentality. So, that to me is, you know, maybe that's too extreme for some carriers being that third-party data focused, but it is possible. And what you need to ask yourself is if we're asking 80 questions right now, how many of them do we have to ask? And you can't tell me the answer is, well, we've always asked that because that's not a business requirement. So sometimes you need to start at zero and move up. But if it's not impacting the rating or something like incredibly important to your actual exposure management, you need to ask the question. Um, and there are a lot of sacred cows out there. That's, that's to me, the bigger holdup than the technical side. Of course, there are situations where the tech stands in the way, but it doesn't have to. Um, and actually, I think it's a lot easier to fix the tech than the mentality of like, no, thou shalt ask these questions. Yep. Maybe you don't need to. Sure. No, great, great points. And I think one thing on top of the explosion of third-party data that you mentioned and changing gears slightly is almost kind of an equal explosion of, of artificial intelligence or AI and ML use cases. I think, you know, you're talking about the aerial imagery 
Um, you know, that's a topic that's come up before in the show with Cape Analytics and, yeah. and you know, providing predictive analytics for, for kind of doing some kind of pre-underwriting. Uh, lots of use cases across the insurance lifecycle. I'm wondering, um, you know, from your standpoint, what are some use cases where you're really starting to see carriers adopt and leverage AI and ML to provide more tailored, more personalized customer experiences? Um, I do think, you know, you mentioned Cape. I think a lot of those kinds of solutions where it's aerial imagery and um, geo analytics, geospatial stuff, that I think has done really well. Um, and you could say, well, you know, the, go back a couple of years, the models hadn't been tested yet. So I think of Kin Insurance as one of the companies in uh, in my second book. And as of the writing of the book, they had good results, um, but there hadn't been a major storm in their footprint yet. So like we were be between like horrible Nat Cat situations. Right? Yeah. And so it, it's hard to claim success when you're a cat exposed writer in a, a non-cat challenged moment in time. So they have since been tested. And as we know, in Florida, a lot of carriers are not making it through this past year. Um, we've already seen some fold. We will see others as well. Kin is, is held up just fine. Um, and I know some Kin insureds that have had their rates go up significantly, but not to the same extent that some other carriers have. So, you know, that, that could just be those homes. We, you know, I don't know that every Kin insured hasn't seen an 800% increase in some cases, but um, that's a case. Well, now they have been tested. Their whole approach is very third-party AI data focused off the mapping, uh, the mapping stuff. So I think that that's a, a really good sign of what's possible, and they're not alone. Um, we're seeing that in Fire as well. Problem with Fire is it used to be geographic and time constrained. There was a fire season, like we had a hurricane season. What we've seen now is actually almost half the country is at risk of or actually burning at any given time. Um, that is a, a huge problem. Um, we've got a lot of other NatCat related uh, AI benefits to be to be brought in. And it's not just about identifying the risk and then don't write it. It's about figuring out, well, what can you do about it? So um, it's really early days, Rob, but I'm seeing some folks who are talking about, yes, we need to do risk selection and pricing and AI and ML are very helpful with that, especially in some of these more extreme, like presumably um, uninsurable moments like, you know, fire or coastal wind exposure or what have you. But it's also about what do we know because of that imagery and that the analytics of where the actual risk lies and, and what the risk vectors are for what could bring that house to the ground. Um, what do we know and could actually take action on that would materially change the risk? So it's almost like having, um, you know, an architectural view of or an engineering view of the impact of that exposure and being able to then take a risk management or risk prevention approach. Uh, I, I had on, on my show, Dr. Rick Spinrad, who's the head of NOAA, um, which was really cool, really fascinating conversation. And he talked about uh, this home he used to have in Oregon that had just beautiful uh, foliage and trees around it. And, you know, being who he is, he understood some of the risks. And this is before wildfire had reached their area. And they made a, a decision to clear cut a lot of that. Um, and, you know, the neighbors weren't happy and people are like, you just ruined the value of your home. And then uh, the people who bought the home, he's followed up with them. And it's like, yeah, you know, a lot of the neighboring homes were lost and ours is still standing. And we understood that, you know, aesthetically, that was unfortunate. And, you know, it would have been nicer if the trees were there but then we wouldn't have a house. And so it raises this question of what decisions can you make proactively 
if people are going to continue to build where we shouldn't be building or the expansion of places we shouldn't be building is happening because of climate change, um, we have to figure out how to coexist with that. And especially when carriers are like, nope, uninsurable, we're just pulling out of these markets. We need to think as an industry, do we really want to just paint ourselves into a corner and that's all we have left left to insure? Um, you know, it's the auto industry in the U.S. has done this where like the U.S. manufacturers pull out of sedans, just trucks and SUVs because they're profitable and sedans aren't. You might think about, is there a way for us to compete in sedans? Because what if preferences change? Um, do we want to just keep abdicating pieces of the market and retreat, retreat, retreat? Where will we be at the end of that? So might be the right strategy. It might not be. And you need better tools to be able to figure that out and figure out how can we survive if we were to still write in these areas and pick up that exposure. And I think it's it's less of a binary choice these days because we have different tools at our disposal. So that's kind of, you know, rating, risk selection and all that. Absolutely. And claims adjusting. It's very helpful in that. I'm thinking about the next the next order is not just risk transfers, risk prevention. And there's a lot of conversation right now about that move. I think this is one of those areas where AI and ML can be really helpful in being much more specific and guiding and not just nice to have marketing kind of like stick these water sensors in your home and protect like that's very nice, but your home's already flooding. And yes, your phone is telling you that, but you can't do anything. What if we could actually affect change? And that takes, I think, a lot more precision in the kinds of recommendations and the actions that you would take. Brian, moving you know, from property insurance to, to auto, as you kind of highlighted last, um, usage-based insurance. Um, you know, I would think usage-based insurance for personal auto is where you can create that ideal customer experience. I'm only paying for what I really consume. Yeah. Uh, I'm only paying for what I need. Are you really seeing adoption of usage-based insurance um, across the industry? And are you seeing adoption where it's more than just I'm going to give you a discount because you're, you're using my app. Yeah. I'm actually going to use this information to charge you more during the policy term if you're driving crazy, or I'm going to use it to charge you less because you're taking our feedback, kind of like you mentioned earlier, yeah. uh, and you're adjusting your driving so that you're, you're avoiding those heartbreaking events. You're not driving at night anymore, that type of yeah. thing. Um, I think true UBI, which is more of what you were just describing, where it's, it's more dynamic, by and large, it's not happening. Um, we haven't really adopted that yet. And, and I think there's some technological reasons for that. I think what you're largely seeing is using it as a tool for better risk selection. Because who is going to let you watch how they're driving? Probably someone who's a better driver. And so we are identifying them and giving them a better rate uh, to be more competitive. And then there's a sense of locking in because, well, if I go switch carriers, I got to start from zero again and go through the three months of training and like letting them watch me which like, I know when I told my wife, I was sticking something in her car that she was like, what do you mean? And now I got to drive slower. She's a wonderful <laughs> driver. There's no issue with her driving before, but like, so for me, I was like, oh, I'm not doing that again. I got yelled at enough for doing that. Um, but we saved like 22% or something. So it was worth it. Right. Um, that sense of lock-in, like insurance is a retention business. It's not a single year policy business. So if you can find much better risks and give them a sense of lock-in, so they're not going to leave that's the path to profitability. I think that's largely what the tools of UBI are doing right now, but it's not really UBI. It's the static discount. And that's why you see like we returned our dongles after three months. They just want to watch us for three months. So they're not interacting with us. Um, we're actually not even with that carrier anymore, but we're not, they, they weren't interacting with us beyond yeah. those three months. So it, 
there's no coaching. There's no anything. That was a risk selection um, and, uh, and, and retention kind of story. The reason why I don't think we're really there yet is right now, the overwhelming uh, deployment of UBI and the tools around it is really 101 level. It can tell how fast you're going, where you're going, how far you drive, and um, hard physics moments. So hard acceleration or hard braking. The exceptions are like the the Tesla uh, UBI solution, which does bring in much more data. This is the difference is if I brake hard, it could be that I wasn't paying attention. I missed the cues and I had to slam on the brakes and I may end up getting rear-ended. I may cause an accident. That's bad. I may also have just seen a ball roll in front of my car and I see a child running towards the street and I know there's no one behind me and I slam on the brakes. I don't cause any risk to anybody else and I potentially save a life. That is a really good driving decision. And it's through no fault of my own that I had to brake hard. That was the right thing to do. If my carrier is a carrier who's decided like hard braking is bad driving, so we're going to penalize you for that, I would be livid in that moment and I would leave instantly. Like that is you're a terrible company if you just penalize me for saving a child's life and knowing my surroundings and knowing there's nothing at risk. If I'm in a connected car, you if you could see the data, you would have seen from the proximity sensors or the cameras or the LIDAR or anything else what was going on. You would have seen the ball moving perpendicular to the car. You would have seen the child off. And my car can tell me when there's a pedestrian on the sidewalk near my car. And I don't have a high-end car at all. Yeah. Um, so that like... That's all there. My carrier doesn't know any of that. But in the Tesla program and some of the others like it, all of that sensor data is brought to bear. So it would have known like that heartbreaking was excellent driving. We should reward them for that. This other heartbreaking was bad driving because we knew there were cars around him. We could see his eyes because we have a camera facing him for the autonomous features. Um, we're connected to his phone and we know that he was texting or he was looking at something or we knew there was a passenger. And because we saw his eyes and there's microphones in the car, we knew they were talking and he was turned and looking at the passenger. I mean, and, or the radio was blaring or, you know, all these sorts of things create the full context to make the right judgment calls. We really do need to get to that point before I think UBI makes any sense because it has to be accurate. And right now we're either left with potentially penalizing or rewarding in totally the wrong moments and angering people or giving them discounts they really don't deserve, which is also bad for us. Or we have to throw those moments away and we're left with nothing. We're just charging off distance and maybe speed. But again, like speed could be a good thing. It doesn't mean it's good to speed, but there are times where, you know, you slam on the gas to avoid something. That's not a bad moment. So if we're going to have this very dumbed down kind of interpretation ability, I don't think UBI really works beyond risk selection. And that's largely where we are today. This is a connected car story. The tools of the trade are already there. 90 something percent of all new cars coming uh, into the market are connected if you can get the chips in them. Um, so you need the, the fleet to turn over before this is really the overwhelming majority, but that's roughly 12, 13 years until that happens. So sometime in the mid 2030s, I think we'll see a lot more of this. It's really early right now. And Tesla's a very interesting test bed for that, um, partially because of how expensive they are to insure that it just it makes their stories so much more sensible to to insure with them if you can. Um, but we'll see. But yeah, I don't I don't think it's really there yet. And Matteo Carboni is like the IoT person in the industry. He, he largely would say the same thing. Um, I had him on my show and that's sort of what he said is like, you should be experimenting with it, but 
it's not what's winning right now. It is really just the, uh, the basic risk selection and discount kind of story. Right. That, that makes sense. And I think we, you know, what you're saying is it, it can't be that basic a model. It can't work 80% of the time. Sure. Heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, that generally is probably not a good thing, but it's not always a good thing. And no. we've got a ways to go with that. Um, Brian, it's, it's been awesome having you as we, we get closer to, to wrapping up here. I think you, you've made a number of really great points and, um, you know, just kind of circling back to a couple of things you've said, I think with, with AI and ML, it's, uh, it, it sounded like, you know, what are the ways that you can use it for the customer experience, not just for your own you yeah. know, risk selection, you find, you know, let's, as an industry, let's find a solution for, uh, you know, for the customer and be thinking of them first as these new technologies are coming to bear as you can incorporate them into the core system, have that focus on, on the end customer and, and not just, you know, for the sake of measuring, measuring and not, not giving the customer something back. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, before we, we do wrap here, I just wanted to, you know, well, thank you again, but, uh, give you a chance. Uh, is there anything else that you, you want to add here before we, we wrap it all up? No, I mean, I, I hope, I hope uh, some people disagree with me and I hope they want to engage in it. That's the whole point, right? We should be talking about these things and challenging each other. And that's how we move the industry forward. So hopefully uh, some people liked what I said and some were like, oh, this guy doesn't know anything, but they're both great. Let, you know, let's just talk about this stuff. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's keep the conversation going. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, all. Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all for tuning in today. More about, you can learn more about Brian by going to his website, future-of-insurance.com. To learn more about how Duck Creek supports personalized experiences, you can go to our website on duckcreek.com. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check out all of our other episodes and follow us on our podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, of course, duckcreek.com. Until then, we will see you in the next episode.